It's good to gather again together around the Word of God, and let me encourage you, if you would, to turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We have been looking in these last days in Paul's letter to the Colossians, specifically in chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. We've been discussing the theme of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. The supremacy of Jesus Christ, as wonderful and as lofty and as exalted as that is for true believers, those who love him, those who believe he is precious, as lofty as Christ is to them, frankly, the supremacy of Christ is being questioned from all quarters in in our world. Those outside the Christian church will obviously not acknowledge the lordship of Christ over their lives, and because of that, they will often deny the deity of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and even the historicity of Christ. We expect this from those who don't have a personal relationship to Christ, And yet how frightening it is for all of us when we encounter some of the most ardent attacks on the supremacy of Christ from within the walls of the church itself. It is very much the case in our land that people who profess to know Christ, profess to have some sort of allegiance to the church, are attacking the supremacy of Christ. I'll give you one example of that. There are many. But among the many examples, there is a group of self-professed New Testament scholars. You may have been reading about them in the newspaper over the last number of years. And they call themselves the Jesus Seminar. And if you would be reading and listening to the newspaper or radio, you will often hear about the Jesus Seminar scholars There are a group of about 200 of them, men and women, who are endeavoring to study the statements of Jesus Christ, specifically in the Gospel accounts, and to try to determine whether or not those statements are actually genuine, authentic statements of Christ. Their ultimate goal is to identify the things in the Gospels that really were actually uttered by Jesus himself, taught by him. Now, the way they have begun to decide, and they've concluded the Jesus Seminar, at least the words of Christ, they're now beginning to assemble to discuss the works of Christ, but the way they decide which sayings were or were not those of Jesus was very, very strange. They, by majority vote, would take little beads, different colored beads, and they would put them in a ballot box, And then that ballot box would then be uh, added up, and those beads would then determine the validity of Jesus' words. It's interesting, the red bead was the symbol that they gave if they thought that it was probably an actual statement by Christ. So if they thought that that was probably the words of Christ, they would take this little red bead and they would shove it into the ballot box, and that would be determinative as to whether or not Jesus actually uttered those words. If they considered a statement by Christ as possibly a true statement, they would give Christ the peace deed and put it into the ballot box. If they thought that a statement was attributed to Jesus but then altered by a disciple of Christ or maybe by one of the first century Christians, they would put a gray deed in the ballot box, and if they thought that a statement was absolutely not the statement or the teaching of Christ, they would put a black bead, they would blackball the statement of Christ, put that into the ballot box. That would be the strongest no, and they were convinced that a particular passage was absolutely fabricated or even spoken by someone other than Christ. And in reading one of the summations, of this Jesus seminar and what they concluded, I was astounded. I quote from one of the magazines that gave a report on it. It says, The results are astonishing. The group decreed that only 31 
of the more than 700 sayings attributed to Jesus in the Gospels are unquestionably authentic. And out of that 31, 16 of those are duplicates from the parallel gospel passages. So the number even shrinks. More than half the sayings considered received the black bead. Out of the 700, all totaled, the panel utterly rejected 80% of the words Scripture itself attributes to Jesus. You'll be interested to know some of the passages that were ousted by the Jesus Seminar. Matthew 5.11, which I think is very appropriate. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Or Mark 10.32-34, on which Jesus foretold his crucifixion. The Jesus Seminar scholars utterly rejected all of the apocalyptic words of Jesus Christ that would be obvious. And, tragically, everything, everything in the Gospel of John. Save one verse, John 4, 44, ironically saying, a prophet has no honor in his own country. In an editorial from Masterpiece Magazine, my friend and mentor John MacArthur said this regarding the Jesus Seminar. What tools did the Jesus Seminar scholars employ? Ultimately, only one, the test of political correctness. Taking a cue from secular academia, the fellows of the Jesus Seminar simply dismissed every statement containing a hint of some truth or point of view that is rejected by the political liberals in our culture. Sacred dogma for the politically correct includes equality for women, homosexuality as an alternative lifestyle, environmental activism, animal rights, racial quotas, hardline anti-war doctrine, and so on. While chatting about academic freedom, these people will try to censor anyone who dares challenge their worldview, even Jesus. The Jesus Seminar panel members, who hail mostly from secular academic settings, are only attempting to make Jesus politically correct. In this editorial, which, by the way, was called Blackballing Scripture, scholarship takes a beating. MacArthur ends by saying this, quote, Please don't get the idea that I think the conclusions of the Jesus Seminar should be discarded lightly. On the contrary, I think they should be thrown away with as much force as possible. Now, the kind of political correctness that the Jesus Seminar is employing in order to determine the actual statements of Jesus is precisely the issue that Paul addresses here in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. There were no doubt in Paul's day many groups, many religions, many teachings that would not attribute the supremacy of Jesus Christ and his rightful place. And Paul addresses such things in the religious pluralism of his day, in the syncretistic religion of his culture, and we must as well. And you know we've been doing that in our series together on the supremacy of Christ. This is part three in that series. And I would invite you to turn to your outline, and you will see a part one and part two. And if you were with us last Lord's Day, you saw that we covered part one, the supremacy of Jesus Christ in creation. And you saw very clearly that in part one we covered five essential statements by the Apostle Paul that affirmed the supremacy of Christ in creation. Number one, Christ is the perfect image of the invisible God. Secondly, Christ is the leader over all creation. Thirdly, Christ is the creator of all things. Number four, Christ is the ruler or monarch of all creation, and Christ, fifthly, is the self-existent sustainer of all creation. That's all set for us in verses 15 to 17. This morning we come to the second part of this little series on the supremacy of Christ, and I would invite you to look at Colossians 1, 15 to 20, as we read it together for the setting of our message this morning. 
Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body of the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. The supremacy of Jesus Christ. Paul says not only in creation, but in the church. Let's look at verses 18 to 20 and see what Paul has to say about the supremacy of Jesus Christ in the church. He's going to tell us six things that you have in your outline. Number one, Christ is the head of the body of the church. That's contained for us in the first part of verse 18. Secondly, Christ is the cause of everything. Verse 18b. Thirdly, Christ is the pioneer of all resurrected believers. That's at the end of verse 18. And then lastly in verse 18, number 4, Christ is the preeminent Lord. A power-packed verse for which we'll study in detail. And then number 5, Christ is the possessor of all God's fullness. Verse 19. And then lastly this morning we'll look at Christ as the agent of God's reconciliation to sinners, verse 20. Let's study it together. Number one, Christ is the head of the body, the church. Look at the first part of verse 18. He is also head of the body, the church. Now the very first thing that Paul wants to communicate to the Colossians about Christ Jesus' supremacy is that he is the head of the body of the church. And that's certainly an appropriate place to start. Of the many analogies that are given in the New Testament about the relationship of Jesus Christ to believers, this one analogy of the body is unique to New Testament believers alone. There are many analogies that are given. There's the analogy that the believer are a holy, royal priesthood offering up spiritual sacrifices to God. You know that from 1 Peter 2 and other passages. Also, the Bible teaches that we are a chosen race belonging to God himself. We're a separate, sanctified nation set apart by God because he is our eternal one. The Bible speaks about that. The Bible also tells us that we, as believers in Christ, are a temple which is inhabited by the Spirit of God. We're also called a set of branches, vitally connected to the living vine, Jesus Christ. We're also said to be, as the church, a flock, led by the good shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep. We're also said to be a household or a family of faith, sharing the common life of Jesus himself. But no analogy, even including all of those, no analogy speaks more to the uniqueness of the relationship between Christ and his church. He is the head, we are his body. I'll even go one step further. All of those other analogies that I just mentioned and listed for you are spoken both of Old Testament believers and New Testament believers. All of them. In fact, the royal priesthood, the chosen nation, those kinds of analogies, find their birth in the Old Testament, don't they? But the one unique mark of the New Testament church is that we and we alone are spoken of as the body of Christ, with Jesus as our head. I want to show you a couple of passages that teach this truth. The first couple I'm going to show you are speaking primarily of the horizontal relationship of the body toward itself, the body toward its fellow members. And then I'll show you a couple of passages which speak of this body concept with Christ as the head in a vertical way. 
speaking of the body of believers collectively looking to its head, Christ himself. For the horizontal relationship, turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12. And it's going to speak powerfully to us about the fact that we, horizontally, are members literally of one another, of the body of Christ. You know that 1 Corinthians 12 is speaking of spiritual giftedness within the church, and it's talking about how we need each other, and we must perform our giftedness in the body of Christ for the optimum working of that body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. There is where we begin to see the analogy. Just as there is a physical body, and just as that physical body has arms and legs and vital internal organs and a skeletal system, all of it being absolutely vital for the perfect running and unity of that body, so also is the body of Christ. Verse 13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. You see that organizational unity there, that organism we call the body? Verse 14, For the body is not one member, but many. It's really not even correct to say that I, as an individual believer, am a member as though I am one entity as over against someone else who's a member of the body of Christ as though they are a member, speaking of one entity. We are, as an organizational unity, all individually a part of a greater whole. I only exist individually in the body of Christ as I exist collectively in the body of Christ. That's his point. I can't say as one person that I am the body of Christ. I am a part of the body of Christ, but I'm not the body of Christ. But we all make up that body. And then he even goes on to define more fully what he's talking about in verse 15. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less the part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members but one body. The powerful analogy that speaks horizontally of our relationship to one another. It speaks against the lone ranger mentality of the Christian life, where someone assumes that they can exist apart from the body of Christ. They can't. We are organizationally tied together. We're a living organism where we are the body of Christ. Paul says the very same thing in Romans 12. Romans 12, verse 4. Again, within the context of spiritual giftedness, he says, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. What an incredibly powerful statement. We are individually members one of another. That's why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians that when one weeps, how many others weep? We all weep. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. Because literally, we are interconnected. We are members one of another, indissolubly linked. We cannot be separated. It is indivisible. That is the horizontal relationship between members of the body of Christ. And where do we ultimately see that membership headed? To the head itself. To Christ. Linked to Christ. Now we want to speak of the vertical relationship. Turn your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, verses 22 and 23. If 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 
speaks of the members of the body of Christ toward each other, Ephesians 1 gives us the essence of Jesus Christ as the very head of that body. Verse 22 of Ephesians 1, And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him, that's Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. It's not talking about the physical body of Christ. It's talking about the spiritual body of Christ. We all, if we know Christ, make up the body of Christ, the mystical, organic union of believers in Christ to their head. In chapter 2, verse 16 of Ephesians, Paul even brings in the fact that they, as believing Jews and Gentiles, are a part of the body of Christ. It says, Ephesians 2.15, that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. He, would, he might make two into one new man, verse 15 says. The new man is made up of believing Jews and believing Gentiles, and the dividing wall has been forever rent asunder. That's the point. We now don't have distinctions in the body of Christ. We don't have a class Christianity. Whether you're slave or free, Jew or Gentile, man or woman, you are all one in Christ with Christ as the head. He goes on in Ephesians to say the same thing. Chapter 4, verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Chapter 5, verse 23 of Ephesians, when he speaks of the analogy of Christ as the groom in relationship to his bride, the church. Chapter 5, verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. And what should be the church's response, the bride's response to the head, the groom? Verse 24, but as the church is subject to Christ, you see, the church is subject to Christ because he is our living head and we take all of our cues from him. And then he says in verse 30, because we are members of his body. And if you go back to Colossians chapter 2, verse 19, he emphasizes this very same thing. He wants us to know, to understand by repetition what he's speaking of. He says that we are, if we're true believers, holding fast to the head from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. And beloved, when Paul communicates that Jesus Christ is our head, the head of the body, he uses the word kephale, and it means authority. Jesus Christ is our authority. As the head of the church, he is the authority and source of our life as a church, our sustenance as a church, our growth as a body, our direction, and our purpose. We are his elect, he is the head, and individually, we as limbs and organs and ligaments and joints, by being under his control and obeying his direction, live out what it means to live under the supremacy of Jesus Christ. You see, that's what Paul is hinting at. He's saying to us, if Jesus Christ is reigning supreme as head of the church's body, are we submitting to him as our living head? Do we, unlike the Jesus seminar people, submit to Jesus Christ as head of the church? They apparently have decided to install themselves as the head, to decide who and who is not Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is supreme because he is head over the church, his body. And can you imagine what kind of response Paul would have received in the 
syncretistic religious pluralism of his own day? Paul, you can't say that. That is not correct. That's not politically wise on your part. And Paul comes along and cuts, as I've said before, cross grain against the pluralism of his day and says, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And he makes no bones about it. And the implication question for our, for our lives are obvious. Do we, do you, submit to Jesus Christ as head of the church, his body? Do you say about your own life and do you live out in reality Jesus Christ as head, not just of the church, his body, but the head, the body of Christ as you are a part of it? Do you live under the Lordship of Christ? Do you live your life in such a way that people can affirm about you that you not only believe in, but submit to the supremacy of Jesus Christ as the head over his church? What about folks at your place of business? And they look at your life. Even if you weren't saying anything, would they be able to affirm that I don't know all about his Christ, but I know this, he submits himself to Christ as the head. What about school? What about you young people? Do you submit to Jesus Christ as supreme in your life? The people in your school know that about you, even if it were a Christian school? Well, certainly we all know that there's great compromise in Christian schools these days. Do we know and can we affirm wherever we are, school, work, maybe even in ministry in the church, that Jesus Christ is supreme? Or do you, like the Jesus seminar people, dismiss the sayings of Jesus? Maybe not because you doubt the veracity of them, but because you are in your life refusing to submit your will to his very words. Are you like what Jesus said in Luke 6, 46? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? Christ will only have those who submit to his lordship. And it, it will either be now, or it will be in heaven, or it will be in the earth, or under the earth. Christ is the head of the body of the church. Secondly, Christ is the cause of everything. Christ is the cause of everything. What was the second pillar in Paul's affirmation of the supremacy of Jesus Christ? That Christ is the cause, the direct cause of everything. Look at the middle of verse 18. He is the beginning. He is the beginning. You see the little word in front of the word he and he is the beginning. Could be translated for or because. In other words, because Christ is the head of the body of the church, in as much as he is the head of the body of the church, he is the beginning. Or, for the very fact that Christ is the head of the body of the church, he is the beginning. He's the origin, is what it means. Okay, beginning, origin. What's to do with primacy? It does not mean that he was the beginning of God's creation, but rather he is the one who is the founder of creation. He's the beginning. He is the originator of life. He is the cause of everything. You know, in Acts 3.15, it calls Jesus Christ the prince of life. The great statement. The originator, the prince, the founder. And even in Colossians 2.13, it says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. Only a person who is the source and origin of life itself can make anybody alive together with him. You see it? Only a person who is the very source of life itself can give anyone else life. I can't give anyone life. I can't raise anyone from the dead. I can't beget life to someone. I'm in desperate need for life to be given to me and so do you. And Christ is the very origin and source of that life. Someone said he's the path breaker. He holds the key of death 
in Hades. He has authority over life and death. And I love the way Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, But now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You want to believe in the supremacy of Jesus Christ? Paul says, believe that he is the very one who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So Revelation 22:13, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That sums it up. You know, there are people in our world who are in desperate need of life because they're spiritually dead and they are enslaved to the fear of death all their life long. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and verse 15, say it this way. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that Christ, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. You know that that's true of people in general? That they are in slavery to the fear of death. You want to see a living illustration of that? How many of you have traveled on an airplane when there has been great turbulence? How many people would grab a hold of the seats or grab a hold of your arm and would want you to know how fearful they really are when it comes right down to it? And when that turbulence hits its worst, they are a living illustration of Hebrews 2.15. They are in fear and enslaved to the fear of death. You know what I think about? I think about that same kind of experience, and I think about that rough turbulence, and I'm sitting there in that plane just like them, and all I'm thinking of, if death is imminent, this will be a novel experience. Why? Because at the very moment that death occurs, I'm going to be looking into the very face of Jesus Christ. There's no fear of death. If you fear death, it may be because you're enslaved. The fear of death has been delivered for us in the body of Christ by the one who is the very source and origin of life itself. Christ is the beginning. He's the cause of everything. He's the cause of life. He's the one who takes life and death. He is the one who is life itself. Do you acknowledge him as the originator of all life? Do you thank him each and every day of your life that in him you live and move and have your being? Do you thank God every day for the life and breath that you have, for all of the things that he provides that we all take so often for granted? Well, if you do, you're really not living under the supremacy of Christ in that he is the cause of everything. Thirdly, not only is Christ the head of the body of the church, not only is Christ the cause of everything, but he's also the pioneer of all resurrected believers. Notice on the heels of that statement, he is the beginning, comma, the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. And we are coming across that word again that we studied last Lord's Day, propatitas, firstborn. And you remember that I reminded you that it does not mean first in time necessarily. Christ wasn't the first one created, we saw that. He was and is the creator. And secondly, when it says he is the firstborn from the dead, while it may be speaking temporally, it's talking about first in rank. When Christ was raised from the dead, he became first in rank for all those who would be resurrected later. That's what Paul says. His temporal supremacy over all believers. And when they are raised from the dead, it will be as a direct result of Christ being the firstborn, the preeminent one, the one who is also raised from the dead. Because he was raised, we will be raised. That's the point. Why should anyone fear if Christ is the beginning, he is life itself, and even if they die, he will raise himself from the, the dead as he did, and he will raise us from the dead, and he will. 
That's the promise. That's the promise. There's no fear of death. My soul will immediately go to be with Christ, my Savior, and my body will ultimately be resurrected to a resurrection of eternal life. Christ is supreme because he holds the keys of both life and death. You know that this is a firstborn, not in the sense that Christ was the first one resurrected. It's speaking of preeminence. The very same thing, you don't have to turn there, is spoken about Reuben by Jacob his father in Genesis 49 3. It tells us very clearly, it says, Reuben, you are my firstborn. And then he explains what firstborn means. My might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. You see, that's what firstborn is. Preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power. And boy, was the power of God seen in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ, it says, is the firstborn among many brethren, Romans 8, 29. Christ is the firstborn among all those who are asleep, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God so that he will be called the Son of God with power, Romans 1, 4. In Acts 13, 33, it says, because Christ was raised from the dead, it confirmed that he was indeed the Son of God, and when he's raised from the dead, all true believers will also one day be raised from the dead. He's firstborn, he's first place, and because he's preeminent in resurrection, you too will also be resurrected if you know it. But what a glorious truth. Paul even says in Colossians 2, 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Guess what? You will be raised from the dead spiritually. That's what Romans 6 is talking about. We are, we are buried with him in baptism into death, and we are raised with him to walk in newness of life, and you will one day even have your physical body resurrected. And that's because Christ himself was resurrected. You know what Paul is saying? He's using a, a hymn here. This was a hymn of the early church. And he's saying, in my Christological hymn, one of the great propositional truths is that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, and he is the preeminent one in that, and you ought to believe in his resurrection. It's something to be believed. It's not simply something to, to, to look at and to study and to admire. It is something to obey. Do you obey the truth that Jesus Christ is resurrected from the dead? And as a result, do you bow to Christ? you bow to his supremacy? Could it be said of you, and could it be said of me, that we affirm the very words of Jesus himself, unlike the Jews of Seminar, I lay down my life, and I will take it up again. No one took Christ's life from him. He laid his life down, and he said, I will raise it up again. Only God could do that. Only the Lord, Jesus Christ, could do that. And his glorious resurrection speaks of my later glorious resurrection. And the fourth, Christ is the preeminent Lord. Christ is the preeminent Lord. And this is it. This is a phrase that if we had six years, we couldn't exhaust. Notice verse 18, the latter part. Because he is the head of the body, the church, because he is the originating cause of everything, because he has primacy of rank and the resurrection of all the dead ones, because of all these things, Paul says, so that, for the very purpose that, he himself, he and no other, he and he alone might come to have preeminence in everything. Oh, what a flattering statement to the religionist of his day. And what an affirmation of our own day. It isn't Buddha, it isn't Confucius, it isn't Muhammad. It isn't even Moses. It is Christ. He is preeminent. First place. Number one. 
He is total and solely the preeminent one. The great commentator William Henderson says, It stands to reason that one who is firstborn, point of reference, agent, goal, forerunner, and sustainer, governor in the sphere of creation, and head of the body, beginning, and firstborn from the dead in the realm of redemption, has the right to the title, the one who has the preeminent, the divine sovereignty in all things. Absolutely right. If he is all of these things that Paul has already said, then he and he alone has the right to be called the preeminent one. The Christ, the chief one, the foremost place to be first. And as I said to you, this is a hymn of the early church, and this is a hymn that exalts Christ. It goes over and over and over again, the person of Christ, and it says whether in creation or whether in the church, Christ is to be preeminent. And he is to be solely preeminent. It says, he himself, he alone, no other. All other supposed deities, all other self-professed messiahs fall by the wayside. Christ and Christ alone reigns supreme in his church. Paul even says in Colossians 3.11, when he can't even figure out what to say anymore, Christ is all and in all. He just wraps everything up. But he says in chapter 1, verse 18, he is preeminent in everything. No qualifier, folks. He is preeminent in everything. There is not an area of your life or mine that should not be regularly as a habit and pattern of our daily existence that isn't submitted to the preeminent Christ. If you're holding back a sin, if you are involved in a pattern of immorality, if you are taking things that don't belong to you, if there is anything in your life for which you know you have not submitted to Jesus Christ as supreme, you are not living under his supremacy. Christ is all and in all. And you know that the Bible is an incredible book that speaks of Christ on every page. It is amazing. Every single Bible book there is, and all 66 books, speaks in some way to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Listen to this little list. In Genesis, Christ is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, Christ is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, Christ is the high priest. In Numbers, Christ is the pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, Christ is the prophet like Moses. Joshua, he is the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he is the judge and lawgiver. In Ruth, Christ is the kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, Christ is the trusted prophet. In First and Second Kings and Chronicles, Christ is the reigning king. In Ezra, Christ is the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, Christ is the builder of the broken wall. In Esther, Christ is our Mordecai. In Job, Christ is the everlasting redeemer. In Psalms, Christ is the Lord our shepherd. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Christ is true wisdom. In Song of Solomon, Christ is the real lover and bridegroom. In Isaiah, he is the prince of peace and suffering servant. In Jeremiah and Lamentations, he is the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he is the wonderful four-faced man. Daniel, he is the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, he is the eternal husband forever married to the backslider. In Joel, he is the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. Amos, the burden bearer. Obadiah, the savior. Jonah, the great missionary. Micah, the messenger with beautiful feet. Nahum, the avenger. Habakkuk, the evangelist pleading for revival. In Zephaniah, the Lord mighty to save. In Haggai, the restorer of the lost heritage. In Zechariah, the fountain open in the house of David for sin and cleansing. In Malachi, the son of righteousness arising with healing in his wings. In Matthew, the king. In Mark, the supreme servant. In Luke, the son of man. In John, he is God. In Acts, he is the great miracle worker. In Romans, the justifier of the ungodly. In First and Second Corinthians, the power and wisdom of God. In Galatians, the perfect fulfillment of God's law. In Ephesians, the beloved one who elects us to salvation. In Philippians, the Lord and joy personified. In Colossians, the preeminent in creation in the church. 
in First and Second Thessalonians, the one who will meet his bride in the air and he battles the Antichrist for us. And in First and Second Timothy and Titus, the great shepherd who pastors his people. In Philemon, the one who grants us eternal forgiveness. In Hebrews, the creator and high priest who is mightier than the angels. In James, the perfect lawkeeper and doer of the word. In First and Second Peter, he is the faithful sufferer who we can follow, the shepherd and guardian of our souls. In First and Second and Third John, he is God manifested in the flesh, the name with truth and love, and in Revelation, he is the Alpha, the Omega, the First, the Last, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. Christ is preeminent, and if he is presented this way in the book of books, how much more should he be presented that way in your own life? Is he? Does he have first place in your life? Do you serve and love Christ as the preeminent one? Or are you the preeminent one in your life? Are you looking to his word in order to find him in all these ways? Number five, Christ is the possessor of all God's fullness. Christ is the possessor of all God's fullness. Verse 19, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Literally, because in him was well pleased all the fullness to dwell. God is the implied subject. God the Father was well pleased to have his fullness dwell in Christ. Dwell, live down, settle down, take up residence, to take up one's permanent abode. Christ in his incarnation as a man was the man for whom God was well pleased for all his fullness to dwell. Christ is the place in whom God the Father in all his fullness was pleased to take up residence. Paul can't resist, he says in Colossians 2, 9, even later on, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in both passages, this one in Colossians 2, 9, there is not a more clear reference to the deity of Jesus Christ. He is God. The totality of divine essence is in Christ. How could the Jesus Seminar miss it? All of the fullness, all of the attributes of the Father, His Spirit, His Word, His wisdom, His glory are contained and brought to full expression in Christ. And even more, this is speaking of God's saving power. All of the saving power that God has is manifested in Christ. And when Christ died on that cross for wicked and vile sinners, that power of God was seen in its fullness. He is the one mediator between God and the world of mankind. The Colossian Christians need not fear those supernatural powers under whose control men were supposed to live, whether divine emanations, agencies, or the like. God, in all his divine essence and power, had taken up residence in Christ. There's no need to fear any angelic being, any emanation, any supposed superior source of truth and life. It is Christ. And the basic reason that Christ is Lord of creation and the church is that God in all his fullness is pleased to dwell in Christ. It's John 5.20. Speaking about Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. You want to know who God is? Look at Christ. He is God. You believe in the deity of Christ? If you don't, you're not saved. Because first John says, He who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh denies the Father. Do you know him as Lord? Do you submit to him as God in human flesh? He's the possessor of all God's fullness. And finally, Christ is the agent of God's reconciliation to sinners. Verse 20. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. I'm going to save much of my comments on this particular verse for the succeeding verses in verses 21 to 23 because verse 20 
21, 22, and 23 all speak of one theme, and that is the reconciliation of Christ to sinners. But enough to say now, this is his work of reconciliation, to exchange hostility for friendship. Remember James saying that as he does? A man who is a friend of the world is what? An enemy of God. If you are a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. If you are a friend of God, you are an enemy to the world. And if you are an enemy to the world, it is because you have been reconciled. Reconciled. Brought back. Restitution. God has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Christ. And he has reconciled us. Remember the great truth of 2 Corinthians chapter 5? God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Are you reconciled to God? Have you sought forgiveness for being God's enemy? You know for certain that the certificate of debt and your hostility toward God has been taken out of the way. You rejoice in the triumph of Christ on the cross. He's the head. He's the cause. He's the pioneer. He's the preeminent Lord. He's the possessor of all God's fullness. And he is the agent of God's reconciliation to sinners. Is he your Christ? Do you know him? Are you a child? Are you a member of his body? I trust that you are. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I trust that no one will leave this place without the greatest of confidence that they have been reconciled to God. We've broken your law, we've trampled underfoot the Son of God, we count the blood of the covenant an unworthy thing. We spat at him, we mocked him. We're no different from those who did it even physically. And I pray that you would work your work in each and every heart and thank you for what you've done in mind to reconcile me to God. Oh Lord, may no one leave this place without the assurance that they have been reconciled to you. And not only reconciled, but to see you as preeminent, as the perfect image of the invisible God, as, as the cause of everything, as the creator, as the one who is the monarch, as the one who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Thank you for this wonderful Christological hymn of the early church. May we yet sing and preach and apply these very truths for the Savior's sake. Amen.